how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Philippians 4 and verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything is worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Let's pray for Steve. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for Steve. Lord, thank you for the gifts that you've given him. Thank you that he is a gift to us in the congregation here. And we pray now that you will fill him afresh with your Holy Spirit and that all the words that he has been meditating on, Lord, that you've given him to share, that he'll share them with your help and that they'll be buried deep in our hearts, Lord, so that we can live them out in the weeks to come. Amen. Good news. I had some good news this week. Well, it was good news for me. It wasn't good news for everybody else, but it was good news for me that something wasn't going to be happening. And for me, that was good news because it meant it wasn't happening. It meant that I didn't have to do it. It meant that a lot of time was freed up, a lot of worry disappeared, and a lot of stress disappeared from my life that was associated with it. So it was good news. It was good news that I couldn't really tell many people was good news because it sounded a little bit selfish and unfortunate for me to say, this thing is being cancelled because... But good news normally you like to share, don't you? Good news we normally like to share with somebody. We normally like to phone somebody up and say, this is good news. When we get home, we want to tell somebody, this thing happened today, it was brilliant. We get to church and we just have to tell the first person that we see. We don't care who it is, we have to tell them. But there's somebody that we really want to tell about it. Good news is infectious. It's something that we want to spread, we want to pass on. You can give a bit of news and you can tell who thinks it was really good news and really bad news because the phones appear out and people start texting somebody else. Do you know what's just happened? We like spreading good news. That's what 
the passage is about this morning. In fact, it's what the whole of the book of Philippians is about. Good news. Being partners in spreading good news. The phrase good news is the same word as the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is good news. It's good news what Jesus has done. The book of Philippians is a book full of remembering the good things that God has given us in Jesus. It's about being partners with Paul. Paul as the one who was so good at sharing this good news and how the church in Philippi were partners with him and shared the good news with him. What is this good news? Well, there's that beautiful hymn that we read in the middle of the book of Philippians that David shared with us so beautifully. How many weeks ago was that now? Probably sometime in the beginning of June, I expect. When it talks about Jesus in verse 6 of Philippians 2, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Many translations have something about didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, as, this is, as if this is something that Jesus is holding on to or, or refusing to let go of. It's probably not the best way to translate it, and a lot of more recent translations have changed it to did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or used to his advantage. So what it's saying about Jesus is this, that looking at the plight of humanity and looking at the mess in the world, Jesus didn't say, I'm God, I'm too big for that. Didn't look and say, that's the mess that humanity are in, but I'm, that's their fault. I'm God and I'll be God. Jesus looked at it and said, his equality with God wasn't something that should be exploited. That he would empty himself and enter into that place. Saying the very nature of what it means to be God is someone who will empty himself and enter into that space. That's what it means to be God. It means to enter into that space and to redeem humanity and to bless humanity. That's who Jesus is. He's someone that looking at the difficult situation that people are in, enters into that and helps and restores and blesses. It's that story that you sometimes heard told of the man that's in a hole in the ground and can't get out of the hole in the ground and somebody's walking past and he says to the person, will you help me? Expecting that person to throw a ladder down and the person jumps down into the hole with him. He says, what's the point of that? He says, well, I've been in that hole before and I know the way out. That's what Jesus is like entering into this world. That is the good news. There's no news better than that. That the God of the whole world enters into the mess that humanity is in, taking the form of a slave, taking the form of enslaved humanity, humanity that's oppressed by all of this stuff that oppresses us, humanity that's destined for death, and he enters into that death with us and for us, a death that's a death upon a cross. And because of that, God highly exalts him and lifts him up. And we are therefore highly exalted and lifted up in him. It's beautiful stuff. 
And there's a pattern that goes on in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going completely off point here. But the pattern that goes on in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus entering into that pattern of coming down low and then being lifted up. And then throughout the whole of chapter 2 and chapter 3, the picture in Philippians is of how humanity does that, reaching the point that we were looking at last week about us being lifted up to being, being citizens of heaven and being restored to that place with Jesus Christ, that we are lifted up in him. Paul longing to know Christ's resurrection. It's all about that. Jesus entering into our world to save us. That's the good news. And that good news informs three aspects of things that we're looking at this morning. It's the thing that ties everything together. Paul is getting to the end of the letter. And getting to the end of the letter, he talks about things that touch back on the themes that are present throughout the whole of the letter. These themes of partnership in the gospel. These themes of living for the gospel. So the first thing is for us to think about the the gospel as the focus for the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the focus for the church. This good news of the God who enters into our world to save us is the focus of the church. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved, And I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Big themes he talks about. Two big themes he brings out are stand firm. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord. So he tells them to stand firm. And then he goes on to tell them to be of the same mind. I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord, to agree together to have the same mind and the same approach. Stand firm, be of the same mind. What does he write towards the beginning of the epistle? Philippians 1.27. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, because it's about the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind. Same things. Stand firm, united together. That's exactly what Paul is encouraging them to do. So let's think about those two things. Firstly, about standing firm. It's not so much a Gandalf moment on the, on the bridge in Moria. If you can think back to those films from 20-odd years ago, or the books that we know, You Shall Not Pass, standing against the Balrog. It's not just as an individual, us standing our ground and saying, this will not come against us, this will not pass, I will stand firm whatever is happening. It's not just written to us as individuals, it's written to the church as a whole. That us together should stand firm and not budge. And that means standing side by side with each other. Whatever is coming against us, we will not move. In fact, it's a key thing to say about any letter that Paul wrote. Paul, English has has trouble with the word you because the word you is the same when I'm talking to one person or to 55 people. It's all you. So it's very difficult for us to differentiate between one person and more than one. Scottish people are okay because they've got the word use. (laughs) You and use. (laughs) <laughs> that makes it a bit easier, but for, but for English people it's more difficult, we've just got you. Um, whenever Paul's writing in his letter, he's normally writing in the plural. We hear it as 
singular, because that's who we are. We think he's writing to me, stand firm, but he's not. He's writing to the whole church, stand firm. It's a together thing. And he's calling upon the church to stand firm. You know what it's like to be a Christian today? In some ways, it's getting harder to be a Christian today than it has been for some time. The values that we hold as followers of Jesus Christ are less and less the values of society. Christian values have informed the way that Western culture has been for centuries, and there's been a close tie-up between what Christians value and what society values for a long time. And they are falling out of alignment somewhat now. So for Christians who want to hold to a particular Christian view on something, and we can all debate about what those things might be, but there are places where we find that pressure coming against us. There's a pressure where society expects if you have a faith and a religion, that is brilliant. That is great. I'm glad you have a faith that blesses you and helps you. Just don't talk about it in public. It's a private thing, not a public thing. And the message of the good news of Jesus Christ is too good to keep private, isn't it? So I want to make it public. And then we come across pressure as we try and do that. And we get insulted. And we get ridiculed. And we get pressure. I don't know what it is for you, but there are pressures that come against us. We're called to stand firm together against that. Why? Well, Paul writes, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, stand firm in the Lord, therefore. Whenever you read a therefore in Scripture, always look back to see what it's referring to. Why is it saying therefore? Well, it's saying therefore because of what we looked at last week. Our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from there that we're expecting a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. We have a passport in our pocket. I don't know what colour it is. I don't know whether it's maroon or blue. But it says, kingdom of heaven on it. We belong to heaven. We belong to God. That is our passport. And wherever we are in this world, we are citizens of heaven. We may have dual citizenship. We may be citizenship of a nation in this country, but we are citizens of heaven. And just as we can be, it doesn't always work as it should do, but just as we are citizens of the UK and if we're in trouble in another country, we can go to the British Embassy and the British government will come to our aid and defend us, in theory. But for us, as believers in Jesus Christ and citizens of heaven, God is coming to our aid and he is returning. He will return and he will take us to be with him forever. He is coming. We have come to his embassy and he's, it's the wonderful stuff. In light of all of that, in light of the fact that he is coming, stand firm. I don't know what hope is like for you. I think sometimes by hope we mean wishful thinking. I hope it's not going to rain at Revive. <laughs> I think we all know I think we all know that the chances are, at some point, there will be a splash of rain. I hope the geese are quiet. Geese need to be geese. <laughs> maybe if we have a bit of rain, the geese will be happy and they'll make less noise. You never know. Maybe they're, just, maybe they're just calling for a bit of rain. 
I hope I get some good barbecue food. Well, that's going to happen. It's not that kind of hope we're talking about. We're talking about a hope that Jesus will return. We're talking about a hope that Jesus will transform us and save us and bless us and come to our aid. It's guaranteed, it's certain, it's going to happen. It's not a vague hope, it's a certainty. He is going to do this. Doesn't that make it easier to stand firm? Doesn't that make it easier not to budge because you know that the Lord Jesus is coming for us? And he calls upon them too, not just to stand firm, but to be of the same mind. Talking particularly to Euodia and Syntyche. I don't know about you, I kind of wonder what they've done. I kind of wonder what this big deal is. It's not usual for Paul to name a couple of people like this in a letter, to pick on them. Uh, He can sometimes be a little bit more delicate about this, or just not mention it. And he names these two women. They're named and shamed to some extent. Why? What's this about? What's his reference to that about? It's about agreeing together. It's about being unified, being of one mind. He calls upon them to be of the same mind in the Lord, to agree, to to support one another and to agree with one another. I suspect this is not about a personal squabble. I suspect it's not that Euodia and Syntyche both fancy the worship leader and they've fallen out. I suspect it's not because one of them owes the other one five quid and they've fallen out. I suspect it's not because they both brought the same quiche to the church lunch and they've fallen out. I suspect it's not because Euodia wrote something on social media that really annoyed Syntyche and now they've fallen out. I suspect it's not something personal, which is often the reasons that we fall out. The way that Paul writes this makes you feel it's probably something to do about the way that they share the gospel, the way that the church acts and the way that the church behaves. It looks like these are significant women within the church. And the church in Philippi is a complete detour. It's quite likely to be a church that had some quite significant women in leadership in it. Lydia that Paul mentioned in Acts chapter 16 that he met was probably the person in whose house it met. And the person in whose house it met was often the leader of the church, so she could well have been the leader of the church in that setting. So it looks like there were several leading women. And the chances are that there was some disagreement in terms of how the gospel was done, in terms of how things were done for the church. Are we going to do more church on the street? Or are we going to do more alpha? Which one are we going to do? Let's have an argument. Whatever it may have been. And Paul calls on them to have the same mind. To have the mind of Jesus Christ about this. Which is what the whole point of that beautiful hymn I mentioned earlier was about. It's about modelling to us how we act. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself and gave himself. And he calls upon us to sacrifice ourselves and give ourselves for the blessing of one another. To get on. He's saying to these two women, get on with each other and be concerned about the concerns of the other person. I don't know about you, when I look at the church in this country, as a church around the world, one of the things that makes me sad is how fragmented the church is. And I don't mean denominations. I think denominations are fine because denominations are often good things because they represent different emphases that we have. And that's fine as far as I'm concerned. The problem that I have is how one church won't get on with another church. I won't recognise that in Jesus Christ we're seeking to do the same thing and bless one another. It's
It's not about tolerating one another. It's not about looking at the other person and going, oh, I don't really agree with you, I'm not sure if I particularly like you, but you're a Christian, I'll put up with you. It's about looking at the other one and saying, you're a brother in Christ, you're a sister in Christ, you're a church, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to see you blessed to the limits of the amount you can be blessed by. I want to see God pouring his blessing upon you and for you to thrive and for you to grow. I want to see your church blessed so much. And I may not stand in agreement with you on half the things that you do in terms of ways, but I want to see you blessed because your brothers and sisters, that's unity. That's growing together, that's walking together. And Euodia and Syntyche, it's about concern for the other one and laying down my desires for certain things because I want to see us walking together. It's a difficult line, it's a difficult thing to work out. And Paul turns around to somebody else and says, verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they've struggled beside me for the work of the gospel. So he turns to somebody else and says, help them in their disagreement to work it out. Another interesting side point is to wonder who on earth that is he's addressing in this. My hunch is, like some others, that it's probably not a member of the Philippian church. It's probably one of Paul's companions that happens to be in Philippi at the moment, somebody that he works with, which rules out Timothy because he tells us elsewhere in the letter that Timothy's on his way. It rules out Epaphroditus because he's the one taking the letter, the one that's most likely, and I love this kind of stuff. I don't know about you, I love hearing about these sorts of things. The most likely person that people, some people think is Luke. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke. Because he was a, a companion of Paul and spent quite a lot of time with Paul. He was part of Paul's inner circle. And from reading the book of Acts, it's quite likely that Luke spent about five years in the church in Philippi. The way that it's written, Luke seems to be with Paul when he arrives in Philippi and then is there when Paul comes back a couple of chapters, about three or four, about four or five chapters later. He's still there. So... Luke probably spent about five years in Philippi and then joined Paul. So Philippi knew him very, very well. And it looks like he's left Paul when he's in prison, because he was with Paul when he wrote to Colossians. Uh, and now Paul's writing the, the Philippian letter. He's probably disappeared off to Philippi and is spending some time in Philippi. So Paul is asking him to assist. Anyway, it's a complete detail, but I love knowing those sorts of bits of information. But he's calling upon him to help the women. Why? Because it's a high priority. We notice that Paul doesn't take sides. He doesn't say, Euodia, you need to sort yourself out. Syntyche, it's your fault. He just tells them to sort it out. Anybody, any parents here got uh, more than one child, seen the children scribbling, and just sort of, sometimes you want to say to the child, you need to, and sometimes you just sort it out, you too. Just, just sort it out. And sometimes it's important for the people to sort it out, and Luke is encouraging, uh, Paul is encouraging them to do that. Why? Because the gospel is central, and we need to be unified to proclaim the gospel. Society is more fragmented. I don't, I don't want to say than it ever has been. I haven't got enough experience to say that, but it feels like it. It feels like there are politicians out there who are trying to derive divisions in society further apart in their rhetoric in order to win votes and to pull people apart. And that seems to be happening quite a lot at the moment. To get the votes, I'll make you not like the other people. And drive society apart, not drawing society together. And the church should be a place where people look and see, as I often call it, God's greenhouse. This is what the future looks like. And it's here now. Like we can get some seeds and plant them in a greenhouse and get, get our tomato plants growing more quickly than they, should, than they would have been if we'd have left them outside. And we got tomatoes a few weeks earlier because they were done in the greenhouse. You know that sort of thing? That's what the church is. It's the future here 
so that the world can look in and see what the future is going to look like as they look at the church. And therefore, if the church isn't a place of unity, unity across any divide that society wants to place, if we aren't a place of unity and love for one another, what hope is there? Second thing I want to talk about is the gospel helping us to live in the world. The gospel is not just this focus for the work that we do. It's not just this focus for us standing firm, because it's what's true, and standing firm in unity, but it also helps us to live in the world. Paul makes a series of admonitions, a series of things that he asks the people to do. He asks them firstly to rejoice. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice in verse 4. Rejoicing is a theme in Philippians. It comes right the way through, just a few verses in random. Verses 1 to, verse one to 4, chapter 1, verse 4. Constantly praying with joy for every one of you in my prayers. Verse 118. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I'll continue to rejoice. 228. I'm all the more eager to send him, Epaphroditus, therefore, in order that you may rejoice at seeing him and may be less anxious. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I, lo- whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Again and again, he mentions this idea of joy. So he's calling upon us to rejoice. Being joyful, rejoicing, is not the same as being happy, necessarily. I think there's a, an ability to pull those things apart. Being happy is often a response to the circumstances that we're in. I'm happy because it's a sunny day, I'm sitting on the beach, it's rice and it's warm. Everybody else is happy. I've got, some sa- I've got a beautiful sandwich and it hasn't got sand in it. I'm at peace, work isn't bothering me, I'm happy. That's a happy place. And then I'm at work on Monday morning and I'm not quite so happy. But joy, rejoicing can go beyond that. The, the joy that the Lord pours into our hearts enables us to be full of Joy, whatever's going on around us. Even if there's sand in my sandwich, I can still know the joy of the Lord in that moment. Theoretically, it's not always easy, but you know, you can, you can know the joy of the Lord. And joy is a mark of the Christian. Joy is a mark of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. Joy doesn't come and go in the same way. Joy is something that fills us and blesses us. So he calls upon them to rejoice always, In verse 5, let your gentleness be known to everyone. So let others see your gentleness. How do people see gentleness? Often it's what people see when we're doing all the things that I've just described, when we're living with one another and giving way to one another and blessing one another, when we're living with a life shaped by the gospel and when we're rejoicing. That's what we're focusing on and everybody else sees gentleness. They see people who bless one another. They see people who, when they're insulted, don't reply with an insult. They see people who have that meekness of Jesus about them, shaped by Jesus because they're living that way. So rejoice always. Let everyone see your gentleness. Verse 6. Do not worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. No worries, as they say, the other side of the world. No worries, mate. Don't have a worry. Don't be anxious about anything. And finally, pray. 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgivings, so prayer and thankfulness, let your requests be known to God. And thankfulness is a tremendous thing to link into joy. If we focus on thankfulness and looking for things to be thankful for, it enables joy to rise up within us. If it's a habit at the end of the day, I'm not always very good at this, but sometimes I am. At the end of the day, to be thankful for things that God has done in the day and to look back over the day and say, what can I be thankful for? And to thank God for those things. It brings joy into your heart. It brings joy because you see what God has been doing and the things you can be thankful for. A habit of thankfulness is good. So rejoice, be gentle, don't worry, and pray and be thankful. You've got to be kidding, Paul, right? <laughs> it's kind of... How many people here really feel joyful a lot of the time? Let's, let's be honest. You know, does anybody here really say that they feel that they are full of joy? Anybody here feel that they have no anxieties about anything? For some of us, we're anxious about loads of stuff. Even stuff that other people don't get anxious about. We get anxious about it. And for all of us, there are things that make us anxious. The world is not like what Paul has just said. The world is not a place that knows joy. You kind of, when Paul says, rejoice always, you kind of want to say, Paul, 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 Paul. Have you ever been on London Overground at 8 o'clock on a Monday morning? Have you seen my electricity bill, Paul? Have you seen what fossil fuels are doing to our planet? Have you seen my family life? Do you actually know what it feels like to have arthritis, Paul? Do, do you know what it feels like to have arthritis and every move that you make is pain? How can I rejoice? And have you done my job? Do my job for five minutes, Paul, and tell me to rejoice always. That's what the world feels like, a place of no joy. A place where joy has been stripped out. And for many of us, that's how we feel. How can I be joyful when this stuff is happening? And the world is, an, the world is a worrying place. You just need to look at the news for 30 seconds, and there's more than enough to be worried about. Paul, have you lived in London when you tell me not to be anxious about anything? Did you live through the pandemic? Have you seen the state of the NHS? The fact that you can't get an appointment for a year when you're feeling unwell, that's something to be anxious and worried about. Have you had a teenager who goes interrailing? Talking to my next door neighbour about this. Yesterday, her daughter's off interrailing next week. She's saying, I'm trying not to be anxious. <laughs> My daughter's going off interrailing. What about knife crime? I, I don't need to name anything else. Lots of stuff in our life makes us anxious. The world is not a place of joy, and the world is not a place of peace. The world is a place of joylessness often. Well, there's tremendous joy in the world, but there's stress and worry that robs away joy and that makes us anxious. That's what the world is like. And Paul is saying, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, those things can be overturned. There is joy. We'll talk about why in a moment. There is a place where anxiety can be taken away from us. That's because of the gospel. That's because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And the world looks at that and says, that's not my experience. What is it that's changed you? What is it that's changed you and made you different? 
It is about the gospel. It's the foundation of these things. There's these random words written in verse 5. The Lord is near. I don't know how your translation of the Bible uh, handles that and how it punctuates it. It's difficult to know when he says the Lord is near, whether it's talking about the stuff he's talked about before. Rejoice in the Lord always and let your gentleness be known to everyone because the Lord is near. Or whether he is saying, the Lord is near, so therefore do not worry and pray. Which is it connected with? Uh, my Bible makes it, fudges that whole issue by making it a sentence on its own, by having full stop beforehand and the Lord is near around me. And it's probably the right decision. It's probably a bridge that does all of those things. The reason we can be joyful, the reason we can be gentle, the reason we can have no anxiety is because the Lord is near. But what does it mean that the Lord is near? There's two ways that that can be understood too. It can be understood, as the end of chapter 3 was about, about the Lord is about to return and come back. The Lord will be coming back. And that ultimate future that our hope is fixed on is near. It may take a little while to come, but it's near. And in that, we can be joyful. And in that, we can be thankful that God is going to come and sort everything out. Everything. Even that arthritis, it's going to go. That electricity bill won't be a problem. Or does it mean the Lord walks with us, just as Debbie and Tom so beautifully illustrated this morning, that the Lord is close to us? Again, it's probably both of those things. Because the Lord is close to us. Because the Lord is close to us, we can rejoice. When we have no anxiety, we have peace. And joy and peace are two fruit of the Holy Spirit, or two manifestations of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's when God fills us and dwells within us that we manifest that joy and we manifest that peace. So the critical thing is, as he says, bringing everything to God in prayer. We rejoice because God is close. We rejoice because God is close and nothing lasts forever apart from God. The microplastics destroying the ocean that they tell us are going to last for a long, long time, we're not going to last forever. God is going to come. He will sort them all out. And the situation that I'm worried about for this next week, that's not going to last forever. What lasts forever is God returning. And God is close. And he calls on us to bring everything to him in prayer. And as we pray, he listens he understands and he walks with us. That's the gospel. I hope I don't need to say any more about that. That's the good news. And that's the way to joy and peace. We'd love to pray with you about these things this morning. If you feel you've been robbed of joy, you've been robbed of peace, that there are anxieties pressing in on you, we want to pray about that this morning. We'll make space at the end of the meeting to pray about that. The final thing I wanted to say was that the gospel orientates us into the world. And that's what's said in verses 8 and 9. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. How often do we not think about those things? We think about the things that we're bombarded with constantly. The news is a constant source of things that are not 
honourable, just, pleasing, commendable. The news is full of telling us stuff that is designed to provoke anxiety within us. And it's when we think about things that are not right to think about that we get disturbed in our spirit and get moved in a way that we shouldn't. And Paul calls on us to think about what is true. He's talking about things in a way that Greek philosophy would talk about these things. These are often sort of phrases that would come up within Greek philosophy, and that's part of the problem. What is true? What is truth? Do you remember Donald Trump's administration talking about alternative truths a few years back? Remember, the, uh, the, you just need to listen to politicians being interviewed, and you sort of think, how many versions of the truth are there? when they're told something and they say something that seems completely different in their reply to it. But all political parties do this. There seems to be an ability to manipulate truth and to think that truth is variable. What, what is true? And they would say, I am telling the truth. Look at the whole Boris Johnson stuff over Partygate and what truth was in that light and what he claimed was truth and what others claimed was truth and the clash on the definition of truth that came about a part of that. Truth is my story, your story. You know, is, it, is what I say true or what you say is true and therefore you have your truth and I have my truth and we can... So what is truth? What is honourable? What is honourable? It's something that people honour. And half the stuff that our world regards as honourable is not necessarily something that we would think is honourable. Look at the way that social media tears people apart and shames people and brings dishonour upon people for saying something or putting something out there. And that's why our world responds with what is honourable. But is that what is honourable always? Often it is. Sometimes it isn't. What is good? What is pleasing? How do we know those things? How do you know if you've bought a pound of bananas in Sainsbury's? Or a kilo of bananas? You weigh it. You weigh it on a digital scale that's been calibrated properly, and it will tell you that that's a kilogram. Well, that's half a kilogram of bananas. How do you know that your sofa is going to fit in the living room? You measure it with a tape measure. How do you know that your tape measure gives the same length as somebody else's tape measure? That's, that's 90 centimetres. Well, that's why my tape measure said that was 90 centimetres, but it won't fit in the gap, because the, the shop has told me that this sofa is 90 centimetres, but that's measured on this tape measure, which is different. No, our tape measures are calibrated. 90 centimetres is 90 centimetres, and all tape measures are measured against the gold standard centimetre, the gold standard metre. Does that make sense? They have to be calibrated against something to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. What is the calibration mark that helps us to know what is true, that helps us to know what's honourable, to help us to know what is good, to help us to know there are the excellent things to think about. What is the calibration point for that? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. We look to him. Truth isn't malleable. Truth isn't something that we can mould and shape to a certain circumstance. Truth is truth. And the truth is defined on who Jesus is and who God is. That's what truth is. Now, we sometimes struggle to get a hold of the truth. Yes, I can see that. We don't all see the whole truth, so therefore our perspectives can be different. Yes, I do agree with that philosophically, but let's just move on from that quickly. But Jesus is the one who defines what truth is. 
Morality isn't debatable. Morality is what God says morality is. Now, of course, we struggle to understand what God means sometimes, and we can have discussion about that. Of course we can, but there's an absolute standard out there of what morality is and of what truth is. And Paul is calling upon us to think about that. Jesus and the gospel. The one who didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself and took the form of a slave. That's the way that we measure what is good, what is honourable, what is right, what is just, what is pleasing. That's the way. And those are the things we're to think about. Those are the things that he's calling us as a church to think about and as individuals to think about. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have life. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but emptied himself and has come and rescued us and is going to return. Thank you that you are coming back and that is a certainty that we can trust. Thank you that you are close to us each and every moment of the day by your spirit. Lord, this morning we ask you to draw closer and for us to become more aware of your closeness. Would you help us to trust you more, to pray more, to give things over to you more. Help us to think about what's right and pure and good. That we can be men and women moved away from anxiety and moved away from joylessness and know joy and peace. And we pray by your spirit that you would come this morning and minister those things to us. I want to pray about those situations that we are all facing and we give to you those situations, those things that we're worried and concerned about this morning and pray, Lord, would you come into those situations and would you deal with them? Would you deal with us and help us not to be anxious and help us to trust in you? Would you pour joy into our hearts, Lord, where we don't have joy? Would you give us that joy, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let your living word abide in me so richly as I abide in you. Let your living